Hi, this is Tanya Domi. Welcome to The Thought Project, recorded at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, fostering groundbreaking research and scholarship in the arts, social sciences, and sciences. In this space, we talk with faculty and doctoral students about the big thinking and big ideas generating cutting-edge research, informing New Yorkers and the world. This week's guest is Ruth Milkman, a sociologist of labor and labor movements who has written on a variety of topics involving work and organized labor in the United States, past and present. Her most recent book is Unfinished Business, Paid Family Leave in California and the Future of U.S. Work Family Policy, co-authored with Eileen Applebaum. She has also written extensively about low-wage immigrant workers in the United States, analyzing their employment conditions as well as the dynamics of immigrant labor organizing. She helped lead a multi-city team that produced a widely publicized study documenting the prevalence of wage theft and violations of other workplace laws in Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York, and recently co-authored a study of the Occupy Wall Street movement. Milkman's prize-winning book, Gender at Work, The Dynamics of Job Segregation by Sex During World War II, is still widely read and cited. She currently serves as the director of the Joseph S. Murphy Institute for Labor Studies at the Graduate Center. Milkman served as the 107th president of the American Sociological Association 2015 through 2016 and taught sociology for more than 20 years at the University of California, Los Angeles. In 2009, she returned to the Graduate Center, where she began her distinguished career in the 1980s. She holds a PhD in sociology from the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome, Ruth, to the program. Thanks for having me. It seems across the fields of your research from women in wages and the fight for 15 by food workers, immigrants, their work, sick leave and paid family leave here in New York and around the country seem to have uh, been not only we've had significant progress, but many positive developments over the past 15, 20 years. But now we are confronted with this new Trump presidency and it and its apparent retro policies. So are all these advances in jeopardy and how can you how can you, uh, where do you look at all of this right now? The, po- the politics really appear to be quite grim in this moment. At the federal level, you're absolutely right. However, that's actually been true for some time. Like even under Obama, the Congress was controlled by the Republican Party and a lot of the kinds of issues that you just listed, there was no possibility of any progress at the federal level anyway. So I'm not saying it's fine that Trump's there in terms of the fate of American workers, but on those particular issues, paid sick leave, paid family leave, minimum wage increases, that's all state and local stuff. And so I expect the progress will continue. And in some ways, it's been re- the campaigns have been reinvigorated by the Trump situation. You know, people feel like take it to the blue states is the way to go. And right. Um, so the actually the immediate threat to those campaigns is a little different. 
which is that in some states, these are basically red states that have blue cities or blue urban areas inside them. The right wing has tried to pass preemption legislation to prohibit cities, for example, from passing their own minimum wage laws without consent from the state legislature. And they're doing the same thing with paid sick leave. So in some locations, that is the immediate issue. But it's not really Trump. It's more right wing mobilization on other. Very interesting. Um, This all started really after the 2010 midterm elections, the, the right wing offensive on the state level. So you know, the most fa- the most sort of high-profile example is what happened in Wisconsin under Scott Walker, which began exactly then, right after he was elected in 2010 in January the, 2011. The right-to-work laws. Yeah, and well, and the, um, the sort of uh, the public sector union laws changing, which is now, um, I know we're going to get to this, which is now looming as a threat at the federal level in a, in a sort of different form. But Walker was the kind of poster child for that. And many other states, which were, it wasn't as you know, high profile, um, did things like that in that period because a lot of states were then taken over by Republican trifectas where the Republicans controlled both the governorship and both houses of the legislature. legislature. As in Wisconsin. Yeah, yes. well, Wisconsin wasn't actually a trifecta. There was this big fight, as you may remember. Um, but anyway, that was sort of the beginning. So it, it predates Trump is what I'm trying to say, the kind of anti-labor so offensive. So that's, that's, that, that's, uh, that's the other offensive that, that, mm-hmm. that people are dealing with. And so... Uh, surprisingly, and and actually with a, really a positive development, New York State adopted paid family leave this year, and you've written this book uh, and basically looked at California, and there's this saying, what happens in California goes, goes national. Are you surprised by how many states have adopted uh, paid family leave, and what are your thoughts on that? Um, no, I think there will be more states in the absence of any progress at the federal level, which seems unlikely, although even... Well, the reason that this um, has gathered so much momentum, in my view, and we argue this in the book, which I co-authored with Eileen Applebaum, um, is that this is a political crossover issue. Across the political spectrum, most voters support paid family leave. It's kind of an issue whose time came a long time ago. So California was the first state to pass legislation of this kind. That was back in 2002, and their law took effect in 2004. And a bunch of states, not just New York, have followed New Jersey, Rhode Island, Washington State, and New York. And there are more coming. There are campaigns around the country. So this is another case of take it to the blue states. Um, and even more than some of the other issues that where we've seen, um, you know, the developments you talked about before in terms of things like raising the minimum wage and, and whatnot, this is just extremely popular politically to the point that even Ivanka Trump has put out a version of a, of a federal paid family leave plan. I doubt that it has legs. Like, it seems to be rhetoric more than, you know, a real campaign. Real substance, yeah. But that's a signal of just how bipartisan and um, sort of across the board po- and how popular, popular this it is. is. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's been, you know, significant union organizing activity in recent mo- months among media organizations, including this really surprising uh, victory with the Los Angeles Times. And predating that was the unsuccessful effort last year here in New York City at DNA Info and the Gothamist when they organized and were successful. The owner shut it down the very next day. What's driving this organizing activity besides the obvious desire for higher wages? And it does seem 
that in the in the mix nationally, New York still remains a really strong union state too. Well, that's sort of a se- let's put that second uh, thing sure. aside because, of course, the LA Times is not in New York. That's and, true, um, and not all of the recent campaigns that you describe are based here. I think what they're about, it's actually not so much higher wages, although I'm sure that's part of the mix, but more um, some sense of security and, uh, uh, you know, that journalism, as I don't have to tell you, is a field that is in great turmoil. Lots of changes in ownership, lots of shifting tides. No journalist feels secure in her employment or his employment these days. And that's what these campaigns are really about. And and they're also driven by a new generation of journalists who um, I think are the victims of um, a sort of blocked aspirations. In other words, these are young, highly educated young people, men and women, who were um, believed that their futures were bright. And then came the Great Recession, then came Trump, then came all the restructuring in the world of work and in journalism in particular. And, you know, they're very frustrated by that. And they're also pretty highly skilled individuals in most cases. So they have some leverage vis-a-vis the employer, unlike, say, factory workers or who anybody in a relatively unskilled job who can be replaced overnight, um, which is what employers increasingly do when there's labor unrest, as they call it. Um, here, it's not so easy to replace people overnight. So the org and management is often not very sympathetic, at least initially, to these kind of things. So it's low-hanging fruit for organized labor. And um, some very creative organizers have gone after these publications. I happen to um, be familiar with the people who did the campaign at the LA Times, and they're very talented. But it was also what we call in the labor business a, ha- a hot shop, meaning the workers were raring to go. Um, Sometimes they say the boss is the best organizer if you have bad management. <laughs> um, workers get annoyed and sometimes, you know, fight back by organizing a union or something. Right. And so that's part of the story, too, at the Times, as I understand it, the LA Times. But do you want me to talk about New York State and why? Yeah, it's, I mean, so, yeah, in New York State, I mean, I know it's a non sequitur, but it sort of reinforces the idea that, well, there's a lot of unions here. And as a matter of fact, I belong to a union. As do I. Well, New York State is the most highly unionized state in the United States, and New York City is the most highly unionized major city. There actually are some state capitals that have slightly higher union density around the country. So why is that? Well, it's mostly historical, and the odd, um, the, the, the sort of historical background to this the kind of thing that people don't realize is that 50 years ago, New York's union unionization rate was roughly average for the United States. It wasn't anything special. So what's exceptional about New York is that the de-unionization, that the, the decline in union density that occurred in many other parts of the country didn't really happen here to nearly the same degree. It happened a little, but it's very mild compared to other places. And that's a mixed bag. On the one hand, it, um, it means that Unions still have a lot of political influence and power in the workplace and all that, um, but they are increasingly isolated politically and socially um, from the rest of the country in that regard. And the other thing that's changed is there's an enormous gap, actually nationally too, but in New York in particular, between the unionization rates in the public sector and the private sector. So in the public sector, it's really high, about 70%. So you and I, as New York City employees, it's not a surprise that we are union members. Um, In the private sector, it's more like 15%, which is still much higher than the national average. But that kind of gap means that the vast majority of private sector 
workers in New York City and in the state, too, are not union members and are not particularly sympathetic to the concerns of union members who they often see as, you know, sort of pampered, not entitled to all the things that they have that this other 85% of the workforce lacks, like pensions. Um, So that's a very uh, unstable situation. That's a serious gap there. Yeah, it means it makes for a certain amount of isolation and lack of popular support. So, and that's even more true in the rest of the country, but even here in New York with, you know, being at the top of the list in terms of unionization rights, that issue is there. And um, so... So that's a factor. Definitely. Yeah. Um, And speaking of unions, um, you mentioned in your 2017 labor report, which I do work with you on, um, about this upcoming case being argued in front of the Supreme Court this next week, uh, the Janus case. Mm -hmm. And tell tell our listeners why this is such an important uh, decision. That will be issued th- this year. Okay. It's it's a little bit inside baseball, but I'll try to explain it as clearly as I can. Um, it is enormously consequential, despite the fact that it sounds technical. Um, so what's at stake in this case is what are called uh, fair share fees or sometimes agency fees in the public sector. So for many decades now, partly because of an earlier Supreme Court decision, it has been the common practice and you know, legally sanctioned for public sector unions um, to collect fees from workers who are in their bargaining units, meaning covered by a union contract, but choose not to become members. So those fees are called fair share fees because legally unions are required to represent all of those workers, whether they're members or not. And the idea is that they benefit from collective bargaining and grievance handling and all the rest of it. They are covered by all the same provisions as the people who choose to become members, and therefore they should you know, not be free riders. They should pay for their share, their fair share of those services. They do not, by the way, pay for political action activities on the part of the unions if they're paying agency fees. So they're, the, the fees are typically somewhat lower than what if they were full-fledged union members. But anyway... A bunch of uh, groups led by the Koch brothers and other very conservative business interests have been um, filing cases in the courts to try to change that, to challenge that common practice. And Janice is the most recent one. There was actually this amazing drama a couple of years ago because there was an almost identical case before the Supreme Court called Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association almost two years ago now. And the timely, in my view, or some people would say untimely death of Antonin Scalia led to that case being a split vote, four to four, um, which meant that the lower court decision, which was um, one in favor of fair share fees, held. Um, So Scalia died, as we know, suddenly, nobody expected it. That case was a deadlock. And then they brought another one. Janice, which is coming up on Monday. And um, of course, there's a whole backstory to that as well, because um, you may recall that when in the last six months or so of the um, Obama administration, when Scalia died, Obama was blocked from replacing him. And had he done so, perhaps that would have been a fifth vote in favor of fair share fees. We'll never know. Um, Instead, we got Neil Gorsuch and you know, sometimes these predictions are wrong, but virtually all commentators expect that the case will be decided against the unions, which will mean 
that all of a sudden you'll be able to get all the purported benefits of union membership without paying a penny. And not only um, will that mean, so there are some people who already are not members of unions who are paying those agency fees, and so the unions immediately you know, get that hit to their treasuries. But on top of that, once the word spreads and you can be very sure that the same groups that brought these cases will make sure that workers are informed about this because we've seen previews of this at the state level in some places. Um, when the word is out to everybody that, you know, you don't have to pay these dues anymore, um, it's expected by pretty much everybody that those, um, that will be a second hit to union treasury. So this is a very big deal. Uh, sounds like it. Um, Not just, I mean, all over the country, but especially in places like New York where union density is so high among public sector workers. 70%. Nobody knows what it will go down to, but Wisconsin, which we me- mentioned earlier in this conversation, passed, it's not identical, but a, a different kind of law also restricting the rights of public sector unions and union represent, sorry, unionization rates went down uh, by about 40% as a result of that. So no one knows what that will look like on the national level, but it's not going to be pretty from the labor point of view. So not only uh, are workers going to be concerned about an upcoming uh, Supreme Court decision, but uh, given that Trump has been cracking down on deportations of undocumented people in the U.S., um, how have these, you know, ICE policies really affecting work now? Because it would seem that if a DACA solution isn't delivered by the Congress, we may lose 800,000 DACA, uh, DACA status workers, many of whom are teaching. Uh, they have professional degrees. They're working. They, you know, they can't have a, a criminal record. I mean, you're talking about the teacher of the year in the state of New Mexico is a DACA right. uh, citizen, uh, non-citizen. Anyway, how how um, how is this? new policy and anticipated policies, which the president has promised to to say, well, if it's not fixed, you know, after March 8th, then that's it. Um, how, what kind of effect is this going to have on the U.S. economy, notwithstanding the, the effect on millions and millions of people's lives? It's a huge issue. Um, unfortunately, the story doesn't begin with Trump here either, in that some of the immigrant rights advocates, they did get DACA out of the Obama administration, but Obama deported a lot of people, too. Some people called him at the time deporter-in-chief. This is very different in that, well, as you said, the DACA recipients themselves are now potentially threatened. In addition, the under Obama, the deportations were overwhelmingly at the border. What's happening now is that ICE, Immigration Customs and Enforcement, the agency that is supposed to enforce immigration law, is going after undocumented individuals throughout the interior of the country, sometimes in their homes, in front of their children's schools, even in courtrooms. Um, so this is a new level of aggression, so to speak, on the part of um, the ICE, the ICE uh, agents in terms of enforcing immigration. And whereas under Obama, there was an, um, a sort of priority given to people with criminal records, although that was not 100% true under Obama either. But now, there's no regard for that. They, you know, they'll they'll um, apprehend anybody who comes on their radar, and they seem to be targeting activists um, for immigrant rights in particular. Judging from some recent incidents where people speak out, they're more likely to be targeted. Um, so, what does this mean for the economy? It's very complicated. Look, this was a Trump's signature issue when he ran for president, and he's got to deliver red meat to his base, and he's been doing so. 
At the same time, the business wing of his party, the Republican Party, is not too happy about this because they want immigrant workers. They see immigrant workers as the best possible workers. Public is not too happy about this either, particularly in relation to DACA. There, there's something like 75% support from the general right, public right. for letting the DACA kids, or they're not all kids anymore, but young people, um, have a path to legalization. So it's not just the 800,000 DACA workers we're talking about. There's around 11 million um, unauthorized immigrants present inside the United States. And I think even under Trump, it's not likely that every single one of them will be hunted down and deported. I mean, that would essentially be fascism. I mean, I don't think, though I've been wrong before about Trump, I don't think that's very likely. But what the situation has created and what terrorism from the part of a state like our state creates is arbitrary action of this kind. Nobody knows who's going to be targeted next, so everyone is terrified. That's what terrorism looks like. Sure. Um, And in this case, the terrorism is coming from the Trump administration. So that's really the problem. So whereas in recent years, we've seen a lot of organizing among immigrant workers, demands for justice for immigrants and so on, now everyone is busy um, battening down the hatches and just trying to hold on for dear life. So that's gone away. And the other thing that's changed... Well, since the, again, this predates Trump, this next thing, since the financial crisis of 2008 and the unemployment that followed, there's been almost no new undocumented immigration to the United States, very, very little. So what's happened instead is there's been an expansion in guest worker programs that are temporary programs where employers can request and get authorization to bring over, say, farm workers or um, hotel workers or various other categories of workers. Um, That has actually expanded quite substantially since 2008, even as the undocumented immigration has declined. But the numbers are still smaller than what employers want. And there's a lot of talk in a period where we already have pretty low unemployment by historical standards. Um, A lot of talk about labor shortages in some key parts of the economy that would result if this trend continues, which no one knows if it will. And there's an area actually in Massachusetts up on, on Cape Cod where they were bringing a lot of people in from Ireland and Eastern Europe, and they're still they still have shortages up there. People have been talking about this. It's a real problem up there. They can't uh, staff restaurants and hotels, and uh, it's a big problem. It's so. a problem for the construction industry, which has become extremely dependent on immigrant labor. It's a problem for farm workers, for farm, employers of sure. farm workers, yeah, absolutely. Um, and lots of other things. So the, those are the, and home care workers is the next big one that we haven't heard much about because that's experienced at a very um, micro household level, but um, overwhelmingly home care workers are immigrants and that's a, exploding. That the, that's a, the occupation that the Bureau of Labor Statistics predicts will grow the most in the next decade um, with the aging of the population and so on. So this is not good for the U.S. economy. Um yeah, I, I can't imagine it's going to be a positive. Um, I'm just going to ask another question because so much of your research and work has been done on the history of women's labor in the United States and union unionism with respect to gender. And we're now in this moment, this new, new moment, Me Too, with regard to sexual harassment and sexual assault in the workplace. And... I mean, it's really unprecedented when I look back, um, you know, going back to before Title IX, which was 1972, uh, the year I graduated from high school. Um, It's just pretty amazing what has happened, and yet 
in this moment that Trump sort of illustrates as sort of a distillation of male hegemony, toxic male hegemony in the culture. What do you think about all this right now? And what does it mean for women workers? Well, I can speculate, as I have not studied this as a scholar, I'll just say, but I have been personally involved in this issue since the late 1970s myself. I was part of a group that filed the Title IX complaint, one of the very first in the country back when I was in graduate school in 1978. So I've been following the issue ever since. And, you know, the big question in my mind is, why is this happening now? Because it's not like sexual harassment just started yet last week. It's been going on for as long as women have been in the workplace, maybe even longer. (laughs) Um, And I think... The reason it's happening now, though I have no way to prove this, is precisely because we have the harasser-in-chief in in the White House. I think that women are outraged by the fact that, um, you know, those videos that came out right before the election and the way Trump speaks about women and treats women um, has created a new, we've seen it in the women's marches, a new level of outrage. And that has led people to mobilize. And so we're seeing the results in the Me Too stuff. I have to say I'm a little apprehensive because I feel that it's it's not clear to me how effective this movement will be. It's enormous, and it's been effective in toppling some very powerful men from their positions in various companies, as we all mm-hmm. know, from Harvey Weinstein on. But, um, you know, what will be the lasting legacy of this? I think we don't really know yet. I'm sort of, you know, so having been through this a few been around the block around this issue before, I'm a little bit apprehensive. But you're right. This is completely unprecedented, the scale of it. Um, and that it's happening in so many different arenas and, you know, both in politics and in, um, you know, high level kinds of employment, but also at, you know, people are now talking about it in uh, among non-famous men. Yeah, kitchen Um, tables and workplaces. Very interesting, though. One of the things that has come out of this that is also unprecedented is that there's over 500 women that have filed for office who are going to run in this uh, election in 2018, and that's unprecedented in the Democratic side. Never, ever has there been more than 500 women filed. I think that, too, is a reaction to the you know the Trump administration and yes. its sort of explicitly sexist policies. I mean, look, just like with race... It's not like we ever thought that, you know, equality had been won and everything was perfect on the gender front. But there was a sort of, you know, decades long incremental progress that seemed like it was moving along pretty well until Trump. And now, you know, everything that's been achieved feels like it's on the line. And so I think that's why you're seeing both the political activism among women and running for office and so on, as well as Me Too. But again, this is just a comment on reading based on reading the newspaper. I haven't done any research on this. I understand. Well, Ruth, thanks very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to The Thought Project, and thanks to our guest, Professor Ruth Milkman. The Thought Project was produced in partnership with CUNY TV, located at the Graduate Center in the heart of New York City, with production, engineering, and technical assistance by Sarah Fishman and Jack Horowitz. I'm Tanya Domi. Tune in next week.